0: Happy Sabbath. It sure is cold here. I left yesterday from uh, Marathon. Well, actually, the flight was actually from Key West, Florida, and it was nice and sunny and bright. And I left my sister and my brother-in-law and boom, all this snow. But I I really love the snow. And um, I lived in Florida for 23 years, and I actually moved north back to Tennessee because I I miss the seasons and I love the snow. So I don't need a whole season of it, but even just to come and visit it is really nice. So I appreciate you having all the snow for me. Uh, coming Out Ministries was started 12 years ago uh, go by Ron, myself, and three other individuals, and I thought that I was the only person in the entire world that would ever leave Adventism, go into the gay culture, and then come back to Adventism at 40 years old. I, I was sure of it. There was just no way that anybody else would, would do such a thing, and then I found that there were other individuals, and not just the five of us, but as we go around the world in this international ministry, we find that there are hundreds of people that have turned away from God and come back to God, or even held on to God. And while they may have struggled with same-sex attraction, not knowing where it came from, they definitely knew that the power of Jesus Christ was alive and well, and were walking in his grace, rather than the things that come naturally. And that is a very difficult journey, I think, for all of us. You know, you may not have struggled with same-sex attraction, but you struggle with something. And isn't that the most difficult part is to learn to surrender your will and the things that come natural to you and to ask for the power of Jesus Christ to manifest himself, to give you victory over the things that come natural to us, the things that become habits, the things that become addictions, and to walk in his peace and his grace. And one of the things that I think is so vital in this world where we have these social concepts now that it's okay to identify by, by your sinful temptations or the hereditary things that come your way, but is the power of God still available today? Is God's word still worthy? And, and not just that, is it, is it just enough that the power of God can keep you from those things? But wouldn't it be ideal if we started to tell people that That god's way not only is the right way but it's better than what the world is handing out i couldn't walk this walk for the last 21 years if god didn't give me something beyond what i experienced in the gay culture sin does feel good it's a lot of fun for a season and so as i've been walking this walk with jesus christ and, and i'll tell you more about that i found that his way is not just the truth but it satisfies in ways that the gay culture never satisfied and I think that we have to give people more than just giving them the truth of God. We also have to show them and, and, and uh, demonstrate to them that God's way is much better than our ways. So before I begin, I'd like to ask that you would join me in another word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you give so generously to those who ask. And I'm asking, Lord, that as I share your story about me, Lord, that people would be touched and that they would see your power and your grace. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, so our vision statement is to ignite an unquenchable fire that restores all men and women back to the image of our Creator God. Isn't that it? Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden back with Adam and Eve how many thousands of years ago? Is that ever since we left that that light that covered our bodies through sin, through the decision of what Adam and Eve did, we've always been trying to get back to that image. It's not about redefining what sin is. It's not about redefining what uh, humanity is and identity is. You know, that's a cheap uh, imitation, and that's also a deception. Remember, God is trying to restore us to what we were originally, and there will be a group of people. And as I understand this process more, People have called coming out ministries um, present truth. Why is it present truth? Because it's really nothing more than victory over sin. It's not a gay thing. It's not a straight thing. It's about coming to the Lord as we are broken and having him to show us how to walk out of that, but to do it in a way that restores and redeems the things that have been lost to restore us back to the image of who we were intended to be. Now, I'd like to share with you the trailer to our documentary that we made seven years ago. Six years ago? Been a while. Anyway, I'd like to share with you the trailer. And if you go to uh, journeyinterrupted.com, you can download a copy of this for free. It's only 50-some minutes. It's less than an hour. I think that's about three YouTube videos. And it tells the story of five individuals and how God interrupted our journeys and the choices that we made to follow him or to follow our heart. I'd like to share with you that trailer now. Do we have volume?
1: I was 15, and I started dating a girl that lived down the street from me. It was my first time ever dating someone and being official. I was pretty pumped. I got a hickey. My dad saw it and was livid. I love her. It's a girl, and I'm going to be with her, and this is how it is. Yeah, it went terribly. I guess she told some people, and so they came to me and asked me, are you and her gay together? I can either cower away or I can own it, so I'm going to own it. I said, yeah, what about it? Love is not necessarily between a man and a woman. The problem was backwards thinking. If you were truly a Christian, you were on my side. And if not, you were legalistic and you needed to reread what God was really about. Judge not. God being loved meant God was nice and God was chill with what you were cool with. By 18 and 19 and 20, I was super wild and in serial relationships with women. When I got to nursing school, I met the girl that I ended up being engaged to. I kind of slowed down a little bit for her because she had two kids. And then at 22, I got invited to a Bible study. I expected them to bring up my lifestyle really early and then would use that as justification for not coming back, so I agreed to go. Different women in the circle were talking about different experiences they had. I have nothing like that, and it bugged me. I could not stop thinking, what if all of it's true? Are you sure this is who you are? I couldn't stop questioning. I need to feel okay, because I don't feel okay anymore. I Googled verses on homosexuality. Those who practice homosexuality, which was me, and also drunkards and a a bunch of other things that I would have been. I realized that I was in the will not enter the kingdom of God lineup, and it scared me really, really bad. And then I read verse 11, and it says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. you were justified. I realized that there are people in the same place, and they were saved, and they were changed, and that that God could do that for me too, and that I needed that. I could hold on to my sin and reject God, or I could turn to him, all the debt that I'd racked up living like I lived. Didn't have to be mine if I could trust him. So that was it. I knew what I wasn't gonna do because it was right there, it was black and white. I'd twisted those scriptures before, I'd argued them down, I'd said judge not to them like that mattered. And then that day it was like my eyes were really opened. I was amazed at the grace he'd shown me. People say to me all the time, I was born this way. I say, okay, yeah, me too. You're not born with right affections. That's why Jesus had to come. You feeling a desire for sin just proves you need grace like me. It's not gay to straight. It's lost to saved. God calls us not to heterosexuality, but to holiness. Even though the world would paint a a totally different story about what sexuality is and isn't, God's Word is clear, and He can save, and He does, and He will.
0: At journeyinterrupted.com, you can download a copy of our film, and it's free. It's been translated into 12 different languages, and it's been taken around the world. And we use it as a tool to basically begin the discussion and the dialogue about the LGBT issue and God's Word. All right? All right, here you go, Becoming a Man. Now, this was real interesting to me. This title is still kind of um, almost overwhelming to me. As I was growing up, as a little boy, I didn't think that I fit in. I didn't think that I cut it as a boy. And certainly, even as an adult, I certainly wouldn't have referred myself as a male. I mean, I would refer to myself as a male, but not a man. And as this process has gone by, it was God that was affirming to me that I am his man. And so in this process, there were many ups and downs and a lot of things that even when I became conscious at four years old, that already were troubling me in my mind. And I want to tell that story tonight. So contrary to popular belief, God does not hate anyone who's gay. It's a pretty good statement, isn't it? And I think that we as Christians, we've given this misinformation, we've represented God as being harsh and stern when it comes to sexual sin, or maybe the one that you find most offensive. And so for many years, many decades in the church, that there's been this attitude that God hates gays, and that gays are going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. And that was probably why Ron, myself, and many others left the church, because we felt like there was no hope for us, and we certainly felt the wrath of God through the example of what we were experiencing in the church. What I want to do this weekend, what we want to do this weekend, is to basically show you God's overwhelming love that he has for each one of us, but that nobody is lost and that everybody has access to his throne of grace and what those examples look like. Because if you thought that people were born that way and they can't change, then as Ron will say, exhibit A and exhibit B, we stand here to testify that people do change. And what is that change? From gay to straight? Not just that. But also what it includes is it talks about giving us victory over those temptations that would take us down. And so while I'm not married, I'm not in a relationship, I'm not dating, what I find profound is that God can satisfy more than all of the sexual situations that I involved myself in in the time that I was living in that culture. Being sexually addicted, there was no way that I could stop my addictive behaviors. And I find it amazing that God not only satisfies as he gives the victory over those things. So I do believe that God does not hate anyone who's gay. And so at 40 years old when I got baptized as I was coming back into the Adventist Church that I left, I had two questions for Jesus Christ and this was it. Number 1, I want to know why at 4 years old that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. The second question that I had for Jesus was I want to know why I was gay at 13. All of a sudden at 13, when puberty started to hit, my attraction started to be centered around the same sex. I didn't want it. I fought it. I tried to dismiss those thoughts and feelings, but eventually they were just too strong and I gave in to them. So how is it this this happened, God? I didn't choose this stuff. And because there weren't any resources in our denomination, Jesus was obligated personally to try to answer those questions for me. And it took time. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. My story actually begins with my father. My dad was an attractive Italian musician. He was a jazz musician in the Navy. He would go around the world. Uh, He'd be gone sometimes three to six months at a time, entertaining not only the Navy brass, but also the, the public wherever he was at, whether he was in South America or Europe. And so my dad was gone a lot. And what happened is I didn't even realize this until I heard a presentation talking about what happens in the development of children. Did you know that a boy and girl, they don't even know that they're males or females until about the ages of one and three, between the ages of one and three. So for a little boy, all of a sudden he's being nurtured by his mother and protected. And all of a sudden between the ages of one and three, the little boy starts to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm not like mom, I'm like dad. You know, dad takes a kid and he throws him up in the air and he catches him and mom stands back and screams. The little boy is frightened, but the dad laughs as he catches the kid and little boys start to be introduced to the fact that, yeah, dads are dangerous and exciting and also protective. And as this transition is made, and this is necessary for healthy masculine development, the little boy starts to wear baseball caps like his dad. He starts to wear cowboy boots. He wants to be um, a policeman or a fireman like his dad. And all of this is healthy gender stamping healthy gender development. Because then little boys, they don't like to play with girls because girls are gross. Little boys, they only want to play with other little boys. And all of this healthy male gender stamping, it helps to um, solidify their masculinity so that the immutable law that kicks in at puberty is this. The sex that is a mystery at puberty becomes the attraction. And so the same thing has to happen for girls too. Remember, little girls don't like to play with boys because they have cooties. And so these little girls, they only play with other little girls and all of them are are getting their femininity uh, stamped in. And then all of a sudden, the immutable law kicks in at puberty. And again, the sex that is a mystery becomes the attraction. So if I was affirmed by the boys in the neighborhood and by my father, then the sex that would have been the mystery for me at puberty would have become the attraction. But this is what happened in my life. My dad wasn't home a whole lot. And then when my father would come home, he was loud and angry and he was abusive And so in this little subconscious mind, before I was even conscious at the age of four years old, I defensively detached from my father. He wasn't there for me when I needed him. He would be gone several months at a time. But then when he was home and he was abusive, I thought to myself, if that's my role model, no thank you. I rejected it. And the only person that was left for me was my mom. So I wanted to be like her. She was comforting. She was warm. She was gentle. She was consistent. And so as this little boy was growing up, excuse me, I wanted to look like her, dress like her, walk like her, talk like her. And so some of those mannerisms have been imprinted on me, and some of those are here to stay. But as I was growing up, and as I was um, being surrounded by femininity, I had three sisters, no brothers. I didn't have any uncles that lived in the area, and so this was my role model. This is all I knew. So because I rejected masculinity, the only thing for me was femininity. So then as I was developing and growing up, There were many things that were happening. I thought that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body at four years old. That was my reality. I knew something was wrong. I knew I wasn't like my dad, and I wasn't like the boys in the neighborhood, but I also knew that I wasn't like my sisters either. And as I would play with dolls and dress up in my sisters and my mother's clothing, I started to get punished for that. And so I knew that I couldn't do that openly, so I had to do it covertly. And as I was growing up, still struggling, can you imagine what a four-year-old goes through when they don't know who they are? I remember having this fantasy that if I was an identical twin, that would be the perfect solution because then I could look at my identical twin to find out who I was because as a boy, I wasn't cutting it. I knew I wasn't like the other boys in the neighborhood, but again, I wasn't like my sisters either. So this confusion followed me until I was 20 years old. I knew that God existed. I knew that God was real, but I thought that God was like my dad that he was arbitrary, judgmental, and that he was just basically waiting to pull the rug out from under me, and that he was emotionally unavailable to me. But I served God just like I obeyed my father, not because I loved him, but because I feared him. So as I was growing up and developing, you can see here in this picture, I was surrounded by girls. Three of them are my aunts, and then three of them are my sisters, and I am smack dab age-wise right in the center. That's me right in the center there with the white pajamas, And so um, as I was growing up, I was fine with that. I preferred to be in the company of girls, and and I I wanted to be just like them. And so the little boys in, in the neighborhood, they would call me sissy, queer, faggot, little girl. And so you know what? Those words had the power of life and death for me. Remember, the one thing that I needed, the one thing that I wanted, the one thing that I desired was love from my father. And because that was interrupted, because I defensively detached from that, and then as I was patterning and imitating my mother and my sisters, I wasn't born gay and I wasn't born transgender. But because of the defensive detachment, I was set up on this course thinking that I had to change my gender to fit into society as well as to fit into what was in my mind. So the one thing that those boys did is they continued to push masculinity further away so that in my development, I hung out with the girls. So then when puberty came and the immutable law kicked in and the sex that is a mystery of puberty becomes the attraction, boom. The sex that was a mystery for me was not girls. It was actually my own. And that became sexualized. Now, folks, I said that in about 10 minutes, but it took me seven years for God to answer that question for me. But there was something else that was going on during this time too and and the bible is very clear and agrees with science in science we have this thing called epigenetics and cellular memory what it talks about is the fact that when the sperm and the egg they meet together they bring with it the history of three generations or four generations before it wow isn't that amazing the bible confirms this in Exodus, thank you in exodus 20 verse 5 it talks about the sins of the generation to the third and fourth generation So let me explain in a very elementary way. That's me on the left and that's my parents on the right. So when my parents conceived me, they brought with them three to four generations of history of things that had happened in their background of which I knew nothing about. But let me just use my mother as an example. My mother was molested by her father when she was a young girl. My grandmother was molested by her stepfather. And my great-grandmother was a prostitute during the Depression. And so just on my mother's side alone, you can see the history of sexual sin. And while there was nobody that was homosexual, there was sexual abuse that was in our family's generations. In my father's side, my dad in the top right, my father was addicted to pornography. He was also a sexual addict. He was married four times, uh, even as a head elder of the church. Uh, My grandfather was also a musician, very lucky with the ladies as well. My grandmother in the red sweater, she was raised by her mother. And you might wonder where her father was. Well, he died in jail because he shot and killed a man that he thought was sleeping with his wife. So be careful. I come from a very disturbed background, as you can see. But you can start to see the, the, the history of the generations that have come down. And while it wasn't my choice, these are the things that happen when we give in to these sinful, um, these sinful behaviors. And so that helped me to understand that I was fighting more than what I was choosing. There were things that were coming down through the generations. But Ellen White is very clear. She says that we're not committed to these things except as we indulge in them. But when you have these histories, it's very easy to fall into those patterns because of the things that you're familiar with through the family. My first exposure to pornography came when I was 10 years old. And unfortunately, it came from my mother's hands. My dad had left our our home. My father had an affair with a backslidden Seventh-day Adventist waitress that worked in our family restaurant. And I say, yes, that's where my Adventist heritage comes from. And my mother uh, had my father's pornography magazines, and she could see that I was struggling with some identity issues. And so my mother thought that these might help me in my masculine development, and so at 10 years old, she gave me my father's Playboy magazines. I can still remember some of uh, the names of the Playmates. I can still remember the images very clearly, even at 61 years old. And as I looked at these beautiful images on the pages, my mother was hopeful that maybe that would help me to develop attractions to these women, But I already love these women and as I looked at these women, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, I don't fit in. I certainly don't cut it as a male and men love these women, but men don't love me. Maybe if I look like these women, maybe then men would love me. Do you see how this became twisted? And so my mother's um, attempt to help me form masculine uh, uh, identity actually worked in reverse. And so this only pushed me further into the idea that I must become a female So that everything would be okay. I even thought as a teenager, as a Christian, I thought, you know, well, God doesn't approve of homosexuality, you know, and and I don't fit in as a boy. So if I have a sex change, then my attractions will be okay with God. That seems like a good solution, don't you think? So even that was very confused for me as I was developing. This is a picture of me at 12 years old. I'm standing in front of my uncle's truck. Um, This was something... Of a really really disturbing day for me in the devil was already creating these knots in the rope of my early development the rejection of my father the rejection of the kids in school um, my mother giving me my father's porn magazine there were all these knots that the devil was putting in the rope of my identity and sexuality but at 12 years old there I am standing in front of my uncle's truck at about 10 o'clock at night and in that day the devil gave me three knots just in one day let me explain that morning, my father dropped us off after we spent two weeks with him and his new bride. Imagine this 12-year-old kid watching your father touch this woman the way he used to touch her mother. Imagine watching that woman touch her father the way your mother used to touch him. That was very upsetting, not only for my sisters, but also for me. And as, after we spent two weeks in that confusion, my father drops us off in front of my mother's house, and my mother had had an auction the night before and sold everything that we had, second knot in the rope of my life. So, again, everything's just bottoming out. I had a really confusing time with my dad. Then my mother sold everything that we had. We're going to move to Detroit to live in a low-income housing project. I don't know if you're familiar with Romulus, Michigan, but it's not a really great place to live. So my mother gave us one hour to say goodbye to our friends. By this time, I was already going to multiple schools. I went to 10 schools within my early education. So in 12 years, I went to 10 schools. In third grade, I went to three third grades. So I went to my two best friends that lived in my neighborhood, and they happened to be guys, and I'd been gone for two weeks, and I said, hey, listen, I'm moving. You know, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. And my two best friends said, hey, we've come up with a new game while you were gone. We want to show it to you before you leave. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'm going to learn this new game and then never be able to see my friends again. And so we went to our favorite fort. My two best friends stepped off a few feet away, and they started to engage in a homosexual act. I was already slimed. That was the third knot in the rope. In just one day of my development, I freaked out. I said, I got to go, and I left. I never saw my friends again. I got in the truck with my uncle, and I drove five hours to Detroit, Michigan, and this is that kid From that very same day now I don't know if you can see the look on my face but I'm smiling because just like many of us we've been exposed to so many of these things and we learn to just oppress them and push them down because we can't share them with our parents my parents already made that very clear to me that behavior was better than what was going on in your heart so if your stuff in your heart doesn't match your behavior that's okay oppress that but just put on a good face and I was doing that really well and so here I was smiling even though I'd been through this really traumatic day And this is a perfect example, I think, of how I felt most of my life. Proverbs 27, verse 7, basically I'll paraphrase it to say that if you've had a full meal, you don't need dessert. But to somebody starving, somebody who's not getting the nutrition, who's not getting what they need, to them, even something bitter will satisfy. And so this was happening not just for me, but also for my mom. My mom was molested by her father, she was abandoned by her husband. And as we were living in this low-income housing project, she had four children on welfare working two jobs trying to make ends meet. And so, you know what? The only comfort she found is when she gave herself away sexually. Not only was this happening for her, but I was desperate for any kind of male love, any kind of male attention or affirmation. I felt inadequate and, and, and I felt like there was a lot of confusion going on. And so at 13 years old, it started this habit of masturbation and fantasy in my mind. And so in my mind, it was a really rough place. If I didn't get beat up at school, I got beat up at home. It was pretty tough, and so 10 minutes in the bathroom a couple of times a day was my only escape. As this was being formed even more, it says, by beholding, we become changed. And as I was allowing those images in my mind, it was hooking me even stronger and stronger into same-sex attraction. Eventually, my father gave me an offer. He said hey if you come and live with me You can go to the Academy and I thought wow how great I can actually live away from my mother and my father And isn't that sad to think that I felt more secure in an Academy in a dormitory than I would even in my own home But I went and I got baptized a few months before I went my junior year in Academy I had a roommate that was from juvenile detention and unfortunately our my first few weeks my um, I had my first sexual experience with my roommate. That night as I went to bed, I knew that this was not what God wanted. I was shocked by my behavior. I was shocked that I would give in to this thing. But the thing that was most surprising to me was it actually satisfied something really dark inside of me. It actually confirmed to me that I was indeed all those things that all the boys and some of the girls had said all my life. I didn't want this. I knew that God would not approve of this and so I I got a a girlfriend I became a religious leader in my school I went to the first seminar and gave my heart to Jesus again my roommate got kicked out and so I was thinking that if I went through the motions that maybe God would kick in and maybe he would make me straight and that I'd be able to have a wife and a family and as I was going through these motions it was a really tough time and while I was one thing on the outside there were still things that were raging on the inside And eventually I graduated from high school, I went on to Andrews University for a year, I dropped out, I took every religion course that I needed for a whole four year degree, hoping that maybe I would learn something that would help me in this battle going on inside of my mind and still nothing happened. When i got back home i ended up moving to florida i met another young girl that had gone through adventist education we both shared that we were struggling with same-sex attraction and we decided that we were going to go to church and we were going to find out once and for all does jesus really have the answer for people like us and what i did is i watched and i looked and i went to that church week after week and i thought who am i going to share my secret with and finally i saw someone and i watched him for a couple of weeks and i go that's the guy i'm going to share my secret with. And after prayer meeting one night, I went up to him and I said, hey, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, Mike, what's up? And I said, well, it has to do with women. And before I could say another word, he said something so derogatory about women, this this elder of the church, this man uh, that was supposed to be religious. And I knew that I couldn't trust him with my secret. I listened to him intently. I had that same smile on my face. And when he was done, I thanked him for his time. I walked out of church and I said to God, if that's the best you've got, I'm done. I'm out of here. I can't get my religion and my sexuality to come together. I'm 20 years old and nothing's happening. So you're, you're impotent. God doesn't work. And I'm out of here. So at that point, I went into the gay culture. They had their arms open wide. It was 1981. Isn't that interesting? 1981 was also the year that AIDS was discovered. They didn't even know what the disease was. They couldn't even give it an, a name back then. And there were people that were dying left and right. As I went into the gay culture, I thought that if I had a relationship with one man, maybe God would understand, I'm just doing the best I can. And as I was going through the motions, I didn't realize the promiscuity and how rampant it is in the gay culture. And I think that the gay culture takes advantage of the naivete of the Christian culture because it is not the same as straight sex. And so as I was involved in this community now that was embracing me as their family, I found that I was a kid in a candy store and I was acting out as often as three times in a day with different men and as often as four times a week. You do the math times 20 years. I was never faithful in the five significant relationships that I had in 20 years. I had unprotected sex with men who would be dead three months later. And yet every illicit encounter was like Russian roulette to my head and it wasn't enough to stop my my behavior. I was absolutely out of control. Because when we step foot into the devil's area, we have no idea the things that he has waiting for us. The addictions and the drives that I, that I didn't even think were possible were now being my reality. And so as I was in this new culture now, this I knew that religion didn't matter or didn't, didn't work. And I thought to myself, well, I knew that God existed. I didn't deny his existence. And I just thought that he really didn't care about me. And I thought, well, if I'm going to burn in hell, I may as well have a good time on my way there. I remember that I would march in the gay pride parades in Washington, in uh, Orlando, Florida, in New York City. And as I would march in these parades, I would see the Christians with their signs. They said, God hates fags. Thank God for AIDS. And you know what? That didn't make me come to my senses and say, oh, what am I doing? And I should go back to those Christians. Instead, what it did is it pushed me back into my community that I now called my family. And it made me ashamed that I'd ever called myself a Christian before. I was living the gay life. I was a hairdresser and an aerobics instructor. And trust me, you can't get any more gay than that. I was living in a gay neighborhood. I drove a gay car. I had a gay dog. It was a little chihuahua, about six pounds. I was completely surrounded in my my new um, culture. I was accepted by them. I was making a lot of money as a hairdresser. I was doing television people. Some of my best friends were for NBC and CBS. This was the life that I had. I had a boyfriend that was a multimillionaire, ran four radio stations, big blue eyes and big muscles. This was my life. It was like the devil was giving me absolutely everything in the world, but I was still struggling with my sexual addiction. And I knew that this was gonna, this was gonna move me and take me out of control. But I was putting on a good face. And even though I was at the, the highest that I've ever been, making a quarter of a million dollars every year, there still was something missing. And there would be times when I would think about, you know, what about the end of my life? Like, what about when, when the Lord comes to take us home? And if I lived to see that day, I knew that my time had run out. I knew that there wasn't any, any more options for me, and I felt that, that my time was over. And I don't know why those thoughts came into my mind, but I would wash them away and say, you know what, why would I pray to a God that hates me? I remember that my mind had become the fulfillment of Genesis 6 verse 5. Every thought inside my mind was only evil all the time. That is truly who I was. And this is where my story starts to change. And this is where I think that the power really begins is, even though I wasn't praying, I had three sisters that were praying for me. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, it says, For where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And I praise God that my sisters didn't buy into these social constructs that that God loves you and that he made you that way because if they'd have believed that, they would have stopped praying for me and I wasn't praying for myself. And because of those prayers, I didn't get AIDS. And because of their prayers, I do stand in front of you today. And because of their prayers, God was able to work out situations and an opportunity for me to enter into another relationship with him at 40 years old. I can only praise him for giving me the sisters that he did. Well, it wasn't as easy as me getting dunked, but I remember my sister, she was moved by the Holy Spirit. My sister worked with me in my salon. She worked with my partner and I, we had opened up a salon. I had other gay hairdressers in my salon and she treated all of us with respect and love and compassion. I thought that my sister just accepted my gay life. She would invite my lovers over for holiday meals. She never stopped me from interacting with her son, my nephew. And so I thought that she was totally on board with my gay life. And so one day the Lord impressed my sister. He said, invite your brother to the evangelistic series. And my sister said, he'll never go, but I'll ask. And she came up to me and she said, there's an evangelistic series going on in a tent, dirt floor with folding chairs. You want to go? And I looked at my sister and of course I didn't want to go. But the Lord was working in an amazing way. And I agreed and I said, okay, I'll go. So I went to this tent meeting for the first night, and before they even did the lesson, the pastor said, listen, we're gonna answer some of these Q&A questions, and the first question is this, will homosexuals be in heaven? My sister said, that's it, he's gone. She thought that I would get up and leave, but I didn't. The Holy Spirit was holding me together, and I knew that that guy had no idea what it was like to be me. I knew that that guy hadn't gone through what I had gone through, and I sat there. And I remember that I had the desire to come back again and again. Eventually, I went to another evangelistic series that was more convenient for me, and there was this black Spanish preacher, and his preaching went straight, cut straight through all of the dirt and the darkness in my heart, and it really took some meaning for me. And I remember I went on a 10-day vacation with my boyfriend during that time, and already there were things that were changing for me. I, my cholesterol was 385, and I was running marathons, teaching aerobics classes, spin classes. On the outside, it was the healthiest I've ever been, but on the inside, I was heading for a heart attack. My dad had five bypasses at 52. He died at 68 of heart failure. I knew that that was my history. And so I was on that pill that I was going to have to take for the rest of my life until this lady gave a health lecture. And she said, if you go to a plant-based diet, that you can actually lower your cholesterol naturally. And that was it for me. I went out that night and had a bacon double cheeseburger and a big milkshake. And that was my last supper. And during those 10 days on my vacation, I was struggling. I was detoxing from the caffeine and the alcohol and the drugs and the meat and the cheese and the dairy and all that kind of stuff. But it was 10 days that Daniel asked to be on a vegan diet, on a plant-based diet. And after 10 days, they saw the difference in Daniel and his friends. And isn't it interesting that my vacation was 10 days, and on the last day I came back, my sister invited me to the very last day of the seminar, and that was where I heard the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit told me as I was sitting there, Mike, this is it. And the preacher said, for some of you, you'll never have another opportunity to accept the Holy Spirit into your heart. He said, for some of you, you'll walk away and this is it. And I knew that was me. But as I could see my life in in, in panorama, in my mind, I knew that my sexual addiction, my unfaithfulness even to my boyfriend, let alone my relationship with my boyfriend, was not according to what God wanted I asked the Lord, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I give you my heart, but I can't go up there. And you know what? That was all Jesus needed to hear because my next conscious thought is I was standing up in front, my sister crying beside me. I looked at her and I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I stood up when you did. I believe that the moment that I gave Jesus my heart, he said, I'll get you up front. And I bet an angel came on either side of me and marched me to the front because honestly, I don't remember consciously standing up and walking to the front. But that night, my my sister asked me, she said, so what are you going to do about your boyfriend? I said, nothing. I'm gay. I prayed that God would change me. He never did, and so this is who I am. And brothers and sisters, that may not sound like enough to you, but all I had that night was just one single strand of faith. And that's all I was holding on to. And the only truth that I knew that night was that Jesus did love me for who I was. But Jesus never leaves us where we are, does he? And so the next day, I was baptized with a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. Nobody should have baptized me. But God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. I praise God. I praise God that nobody got in my face. I praise God that nobody stuck their finger in my face and told me I was an abomination and that I shouldn't be there. God was holding me together and protecting me from some of our wise members in our church. And as I was walking through this walk, it was very messy. And there were times I would come to church, and I would just feel too holy, and I would go out and I would act out sexually even on the Sabbath day. And I would come back to God in the afternoon and I'd say, well, Lord, you saw what I did. You know, what, you know who I am. You still want me? And I think my defiance was basically testing God because just like the men in my life, beginning with my father that I rejected and then the boys in school that rejected me, the illicit lovers for 20 years that, that had used me and I used them, I thought for sure that I could even wear out the very patience of God. And as I came to him defiant. As I was his answer to me was always the same He said Mike I'm not going anywhere and he said I'm gonna be here as long as you let me and if you'll let me we can walk this out together he was more faithful to me than I was to him and as dirty and messy as I was he still saw something in me that had enough value to work with me to get in the ditch with me and to help me walk that out no matter how long that took and for me it was seven years Seven years of falling and getting up, seven years of falling and getting up. So eventually I was reading the Bible and I was really offended by some of the verses in the Bible because, of course, they were very personal. And I said to God, I go, how dare you make me gay and then tell me I'm an abomination? That's not fair. And as I was walking this walk with Jesus Christ, and I couldn't deny the fact that I was experiencing something different, and and I thought to myself, I said, Lord, if you want me out of that relationship with that guy, you're going to have to do it yourself because I'm digging in my heels and I'm going to prove to you that we could be this mighty team for you. And the Lord said to himself, he said, fine, Mike, I'll get right on that. And three weeks later, my boyfriend broke up with me. And at that moment, I knew that the Lord was intervening, but I went home that night, Still alone, still gay, still sexually addicted. And I thought to myself, well, I never know what it's like to love again. Well, I never know what it's like to hold somebody in my arms. And I started to cry out bitter tears because it wasn't like flipping a switch on the wall and all of a sudden I'm straight and ready to date, mate, and procreate. And as I was walking this out with Jesus Christ, I couldn't, I couldn't tell my sister that, I, that, that my boyfriend and I broke up. She would have been elated and I wasn't there yet. I couldn't tell my friends that I had left my boyfriend. They would have said, Mike, you're an idiot. You're gay. Go back to your boyfriend. And it was just me and Jesus Christ during that time. And as I sobbed those bitter tears, it was Jesus that was holding me. And as I cried out in agony and in this pain, it was Jesus that was loving me. And for the first time, I started to experience an intimacy that I've never experienced before from any other man or person in my whole entire life, and things started to fall off of me. The addictive drives, the things about the pornography, the masturbation, the sexual acting out, because I was finally receiving the good things, and I didn't need those other things that had defined me and ruled me and drove me for all those years. God didn't say to stop being gay. He just said, stop resisting me. Because if you stopped resisting God, you would find that he had everything to satisfy your cries, everything to satisfy the aches and the emptiness inside of you. And if you would just give him a chance to reach in and to touch those places, you would find something greater than the things that drive you because the addictions only satisfy for the moment. And within a few moments after that, the place gets darker and the emptiness gets deeper. And it took time for God to prove that to me he had to win back my love he had to win back my confidence I wasn't just going to give anyone my heart because I had I had received the damage from the Christians that I had been with for all those years as a young person and now coming back to God he had to earn back my trust and that was going to take time and he was so patient in the process so eventually I moved to Tennessee and and um, I'll bring this to a close quickly so I want to tell you this final story and I think it'll help you to understand Philippians 2 verse 5 powerful powerful verse let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus do you battle with thoughts that shouldn't be there ask for the mind of Christ he already has provided it it's sitting there waiting the only reason why you can't have the mind of Christ is if you don't let him that's it another lesson I had to learn so um, this is my house in Tennessee I moved from Florida and I bought this house, and see all that wood that was stacked in front? I split that, and I stacked that. And so it was probably the most manly moment of my life. So I had a salon in my basement. I had a circular drive in front of my house, and all my clients would come there after I moved to Tennessee. And this brother owed, owed me some firewood. His name is uh, Mark, my friend Mark. So Mark wears flannel shirts. He's got a construction business. He's about 6'4". He's got a full head of hair, beautiful wife, three beautiful kids. And so he's the successful man. And he's about as manly as they come. And so he owed me some firewood and he said, listen, Mike, come over tomorrow and we'll cut that firewood for your wood stove. He said, bring the measurement, you know, so that we can know how to cut it so it'll fit into your wood stove. I said, no problem. The next morning as I was praying in my devotions, I said, Lord, I don't really want to go. I don't want to work that chainsaw because I could split my head open or cut my leg off. But Lord, I'm going because I know I need to learn how to butch it up. And so I said my prayer, and I went to my friend Mark's house, and he said, listen, I'll work the, uh, the, the saw, he said, and you can work the skid steer. Do you people in Michigan know what a skid steer is? You should. I saw a couple today. A skid steer is this machine, and it's got tires like a tank. It's got a shovel on the front. And my job was to work this machine and to pick up these trees. There were trees that were already cut down on the ground. And my job was to pick these up with this machine, with these two joysticks, and then move it over to where Mark was waiting in the back of his truck. And he would work the chainsaw, and he would cut it where I marked it. Are you following me? All right? So anyway, he gave me this, this, this can of spray paint, and my job was to measure out on the trees that were already down and to mark these trees, and that's where he would cut it. It took about five minutes, not bad, you know, for, for a rookie on this machine to work this machine, and my job was to pick up these trees, take it over to Mark, and then tilt it so that he could cut it, and we did that all morning long. A couple times, I tipped that thing over, and I had to figure out how to get it back up, and you know what? At the end of the day, he said, Mike, you did a great job. He didn't emasculate me. He didn't embarrass me. He didn't make fun of me. And you know what? I felt really good about the progress that we had made that day. He took the wood to my house. He dropped it off in the front of my house. And he said, listen, Mike, you're going to have to split it and stack it because I got another job. And I thought, good, at least you won't see this sissy swing an axe. And I gave him a hot drink. It was a cold day. And we started talking. And he started to talk about his dad. I don't even know why he brought up his dad. And He really missed his dad. His dad had passed away. He talked about how he vandalized his father's business and he was arrested and put in jail. Not only did he vandalize his father's business, but of course the shame that he brought to all of the people that worked for his father, knowing that it was son that did that. He spent the whole night in jail wondering what his father was going to do. His father went to the jail the next morning, finding out that his son was in jail, knowing what he did. And he was so desperate to get his son out of jail, knowing that he had spent the night in jail. And it didn't mean that he didn't have to compensate for what he had done. But he looked at his son when he saw him, and he said, listen, son, he goes, are you hungry? Let's get out of here. And when his father was on his deathbed, he was laying in the bed and he took Mark by the hand and he said, promise me, Mark, that we'll all be in heaven together. Promise me that, that all of our family will be together. Your wife, our kids, promise me that we'll be in heaven together. And as my friend is telling me this beautiful story, this tear starts to run down this guy's face, this macho guy. And I looked at him and I said, you know, that's a really great story, but I don't really relate to it. And I started to tell him about my dad. I read a book one time and it talked about healing homosexuality. And it said, if the homosexual can actually uh, uh, come together with their father and reconcile with their father, that there's great healing for the person. And I thought to myself, that's a no-brainer. My dad's a head elder of his church. I'm an elder in my church. This should be a no-brainer. But every time I went to see my father, there was more teasing. There was more... uh, Uh uh, competition with my dad and and he would you know, uh emasculate me in front of my family And so I would come away feeling worse than I did before and eventually I just got tired of it And I said i'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to see my dad anymore And so my mother was turning 70 my parents hadn't been married in over 30 years But they lived in close proximity And I was going to see my mom for her 70th birthday and the lord said mike I really want you to see your dad. Nope. I'm not going and so I went to see my mother and Sabbath, I woke up and the rest of my family was going to my dad's church and the Lord it was impressing me very strongly and I said, all right, I'll go. Maybe you know something that I don't. Maybe today's gonna de- be the day when my dad and I reconcile. So I agreed and because the impress from the Holy Spirit was so strong, I went to my father's church. He preached the, the, uh, the lesson and, the, um, and, the, and he gave the sermon and then afterwards we had a fellowship meal together in the fellowship room I'm surrounded by my family, all the members of this church. And as I'm sitting there next to my nephew and my stepbrother, they're young. I'm 47 years old. I'm a 47-year-old bald man in a suit sitting there with my family. And they're just trying to tickle me. And at 47 years old, I'm not ticklish anymore. But they are. So we're tickling each other, whatever. And I see my father coming down the side. And as my father's coming towards me, I, 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 I see him coming towards me. And as he's standing behind me, as I'm sitting in the chair, he reaches down and he grabs my knee in a playful effort to to tickle me. Well, like I said, I'm I'm just not ticklish, and so I thought, all right, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And I turn around and I grab my father's knee as he's standing behind me in a playful gesture. And just then, when I grabbed his knee, he jerked his leg back and he took his hand and he slammed it on top of my bald head. Right there in front of my family, in front of all of these strangers that I didn't even know. The the emasculating blow was, was nothing compared to the humiliation. And as I sat there, realizing, that's right, Dad always has to have the last word, I got up, I walked out, I didn't say goodbye to anybody, I got my car, and I drove away. My father said to one of my sisters that he should probably apologize, but I never got that. And as I drove away from the church that day, I wasn't angry at him so much, that was just his behavior, but I was really angry at God, and I said, Lord, did you get what you wanted? Because I didn't. Is this what you wanted me to go for? Is this what I agreed to? I went because you told me to go, and this is how he treats me? And you knew it all the time. So I hope you got what you wanted, because I sure did. not And I was learning the process of forgiveness, knowing that I had to forgive people even if they didn't ask for it. And it took a couple of weeks, and I'd forgiven my dad, and we were talking on the phone. But three months after that last visit, The last physical touch I ever experienced from my father was this embarrassing blow on top of the head. But three months after that visit, my sister came to my church in the afternoon and she said that our father had died on the side of the road that day. Massive heart failure. He was just gone. And as I was holding my sister and and I was looking up in the sky and, and I started to see a little bit of the sunshine coming through the clouds, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and he said, Mike, that's why. I wanted you to see your dad. I was hopeful that your dad would reconcile. I was hopeful that your dad would take advantage of the opportunity and really connect with you. He said, but I couldn't control him any more than I could control you. But the fact that you agreed to go, the fact that you made yourself available, he says, you've got no unfinished business. You did everything that you could have to make things work with your dad. And now you have that peace. So we don't always know what God's intention is, but I do know that I can trust him more than I ever did before. And it's a painful process to go through change, isn't it? It's a painful process to discover new things and to let go of the old things. And then when we finally let go of those things and God starts to show us the good things, then we start to see the reason why he asks us to leave those things. And coming out ministries isn't here to make gay people straight. Coming out ministries is here to really minister to the pain that we all have. Like I said, it's not a gay thing or a straight thing. It's a sin thing. And what we want to do is we want to take the exclusive sins that are now glamorized and glorified in our world today and just put it back in the pot with all the other sexual sins. Did you know that gossip is also an abomination that God talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And so my desire is really to change our thinking in the church. If we got on the same level, and many times the question is, is like, how do we treat the homosexual person that comes into our church? And I say, well, why don't you treat them like you should treat yourself? You know, if we recognize that we're all in this boat together and we all struggle with something instead of the condescending pat to the head, why don't you just come up and say, listen, you're welcome here, just like I'm welcome here. And I have my issues and you have your issues and your issues aren't mine and mine aren't yours. But Jesus says, if we look at him and we walk towards him, he promises to fulfill us in ways that we could never dream possible. Wouldn't that be a novel idea for our church today? I want to share with you in closing these two. Um, oh, I didn't finish my story. Wait, let me go back. So anyway, as I was telling my friend Mark about um, my father's situation or whatever, I thanked Mark. I said, today's the most masculine day that I've had. And I said, you've really shown me a lot. And he said, you know, Mike, you taught me something too. He said, I thought the gays would burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. And he said, I realize that your, your issues are different than mine, but we all struggle with lust. And you know what? I had a friend that left that day. So my friend left and I started splitting that wood and you know it's pretty frustrating. I don't know if you've ever split wood and that was the first time and sometimes I would just try to hit this this one uh, piece of wood and it wouldn't split and I would just throw the axe out and say I'm going to have lunch. And the Holy Spirit would say why don't you turn it just a little bit and hit it again and I would and it would split. And so there was this little 47 year old bald man jumping up and down in his front yard saying today I'm a man as I was stacking this wood in front of my house for everyone to see. And then all of a sudden I looked and I realized that my wood is covered in hot pink. The spray paint that I was using to mark the wood was this hot fluorescent pink. And of course, all this wood that I'm stacking in front of my house covered in pink, you know, was uh, an example of my most masculine moment and I started to laugh. And as I started to laugh, Jesus spoke to me kindly and he said, Mike, you're that wood. I said, what do you mean? And he said, even before the earth was formed, I knew who you were. And he said, and I'm the one that knit your delicate inward parts together in your mother's womb. And he said, you are that wood. I created you in the natural state, which is the wood. And you were always to be a male. You were always to be my man. That's how I made you. He said, but the pink is the artificial. That's the overspray. I didn't put that on you. He said, that's what the world has done to you through, through uh, heredity and cultivated tendencies. He said, but I've made you to be a man. And how beautiful that God, after seven years, answered those two questions that I had for him when I came into the church by answering those through this object lesson. And it's helped me to understand his grace and his timing more and more as I walk with him each day. I want to share with you these two quotes and then we'll close. This is a a quote from Camille Paglia. You may want to take a picture of the screen if you find it interesting. But Camille Paglia is a... um, a gay activist, a lesbian a gay activist, and she's also a scientist. And she says that change is possible. Listen to this. She says, Is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay? Sexuality is highly fluid, and reversals are theoretically possible. However, habit is refractory once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition. This is a phenomenon that's obvious in the struggle with obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction. But she says, helping gays how to learn how to function heterosexually if they wish. is a perfectly worthy aim. If they wish. She goes on and she says something even stronger. Did you get that picture? Whoever wanted that picture? She goes on and she says something stronger. She says, homosexuality is not normal. On the contrary, it's a challenge to the norm. Nature exists whether academics like it or not. And in nature, procreation is the single relentless rule that is the norm. Our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. And so if a lesbian activist who doesn't even acknowledge Jesus as her Lord and Savior, if she can say that change is possible, then who do you think is behind it when the Christians come forward and say that gays can't change and that they have to stay that way? Because when we add the power of Jesus Christ to give us overcoming victory, not only from our addictive drives and the things that we think that we were born with, does Jesus really have the power to return us and to restore us back to who we were originally? And if we say the change is impossible in light of science, it says it is, then that's a message from the devil, not from God. And that it's not compassionate to tell someone that they cannot change. Instead, what you're doing is in your compassion, you're cutting them off from the source of power to transform and to redeem their life. Don't cut me off from the power of God to redeem me. There's an Adventist education um, resource that's been released called Guiding Families. Ron, you wouldn't happen to have one of your books on you, would you? The new one? So, uh, we have some resources available for you tomorrow after the Sabbath. But guiding families of LGBT uh, families is an Adventist edition. It was produced by a man that wasn't a seventh- day Adventist, and then a bunch of Adventist um, a committee went over this resource, and they plugged in some spirit of prophecy and a couple of Bible quotes, and they made it look like Adventists, but it's not an Adventist resource. And what they did is they promoted it not only through the education department, Three years ago, they gave it to all of the educators, but now they've also sent them out to all of the pastors within the North American Division. Not only the North American Division, but now in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. It's being translated into different languages in German. All of this is being distributed, and while much of it is a very good resource, it talks about much needed conversations that we need to have with our LGBT children. But unfortunately, no matter how much you go through this booklet, And as many of the kind words that are in there, and they need to be in there. Unfortunately, what it left out was the most powerful thing, and that's the power of Jesus Christ to redeem and to restore. And how unfortunately that we blew it, the opportunity to connect people back to their Savior, to restore them and to give them a peace. Instead, we've accepted them in their sinful lives, and we've cut them off from the source of power. We have resources that we believe are kind and compassionate. That connect people back to their Savior and if you have the opportunity if you have the right to the Savior's power and authority and to his blood shouldn't everybody have that right too in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10 it says love does no harm to its neighbor therefore love is a fulfillment of the law the law is love and so if we want to connect people to love then we also have to show them that the law is love And that it's not there to restrict you, to harm you, or to punish you, but to restore you, to elevate you, and to bring you back to the image of who God made us. And we as a church, we have a reputation that we've earned. And that reputation is not very kind or loving at all. They did an interview with people in the streets of Chicago that were atheists, and they said, what comes to your mind when I say the name Jesus? And these people would say, oh, Jesus is loving and fair and kind and compassionate. They knew who Jesus was. And then they would ask the very same people, the very same atheists, they would say, so what comes to your mind when I say Christian? And they would say, haters, judges, unfair, unkind, unloving. So brothers and sisters, we as a church, we have a long way to go to show divine compassion, not just to the LGBT community, but to many people that we've rejected over the years. And Ron and I have stories that would shock you of some of the treatment that people have received in our churches. And so I'm going to hand it over to Ron. Ron, if you want to come on up and and get started, I'll just close in prayer and segue to to Ron Woolsey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your redeeming grace that is full and free. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to stand before these brothers and sisters and to be able to speak my story, Lord, but it's really your story because on my own, I should be dead. I thank you, Lord, for um, your grace which is not just unmerited favor, but it's also overcoming power. And I believe, Lord, that your power has been diluted and is being uh, suppressed in our church today. And I pray, Lord, that after this weekend that we will see examples of your power and your grace. I pray that you be with Ron, Pastor Ron, and his story as well. Enlighten us and restore us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.